0: You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, I was reading the headlines in the paper and I was just amazed. I could hardly believe what I was reading. The headlines were one thing, but the pictures were something else. And again, like blinking in almost in disbelief. I was looking at a photograph of some Israeli soldiers celebrating as a group right next to the Western Wailing Wall in the centre of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And this was amazing because this was the first time the city of or parts of the city of the ancient city of Jerusalem for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, virtually since the time of Jesus, were back in the hands of the Israeli people. Now, some of you will instantly know, the year is 1967. And I was reading a headline heralding the end of what became known and what is still known today as the Six-Day War. In six days, the fledgling nation of Israel that had only been reformed less than 20 years before, for the first time since the time of Jesus Christ. In six days, the nation had taken on... The seemingly insurmountable might of the surrounding Arab nations. And they'd won. And they'd won decisively. The tiny nation of Israel, hopelessly outnumbered, had taken on single-handedly. You get this, those of you who weren't around, you, you think about this in the in the light of the current context. They'd taken on single-handedly, no, no direct involvement from the United States or Britain or any other country, single-handedly, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia at one time. And uh, they estimate that during the the six-day conflict, around 21,000, in excess of 21,000 Arabs were killed. Less than 1,000 Israelis were killed. And so during this brief but very intense battle, Israel virtually tripled the amount of land under its control, gaining, of course, the prized but much disputed Western Wailing Wall in the heart of the old city. And I was reading the headlines and I couldn't, I couldn't believe my, my eyes. I was seeing some footage on television. You see, at that time, here's the context. At that time, I was in my late teens. I was living in Perth. I was attending a church that was absolutely obsessed with the return of Jesus Christ. That's pretty much all we ever heard about. And particularly the strategic role of Israel in that process. We were excited. Our minister, George Wood, he was beside himself. He couldn't believe it. Because you see, even secular commentators were using words like miraculous, miracle. How did this, like, even today, in It just defies imagination what happened back there in 1967. Incredible times. And you see why Christians were excited because the return of Israel to the promised land is predicted in the Old Testament. And all those references were brought out. And we all thought, wow, this is it. This is definitely it. Well, here we are nearly 50 years later, and and it hasn't happened yet. And so, guys, I believe that's one of the first things Jesus might say over a cup of coffee in response to the question, when are you coming back? I think one of the first things he would say is, well, you tell me and we'll both know. Uh, Now, I don't want that to sound irreverent. I don't want that to sound irreverent, but you know, that actually is a true reflection of the Bible's teaching. Look at Mark 13, verse 32. Look what Jesus says. No one knows when that day or hour will come, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man. Jesus doesn't know. Only the Father knows. And for the message that I've prepared this morning, friends, I've got four responses from Jesus. Four things I think he would say in response to the question, when are you coming back? And each one of them, this is the first, each one is intended to express an important essential truth about his return. And the truth behind this first statement is self-evident. Namely, it's pointless trying to speculate on the date or the timing of the return of Jesus. That's not what we're meant to be doing, despite what we did do a lot of in in the years gone by perhaps the lack of interest in the return of Christ today. And sadly, there is a lack of interest. Maybe the lack of interest today is in reaction to the uh, incredible preoccupation of so many churches with this topic in years gone by. And like you had to be there to, to sort of believe it. I mean, I've shared some of this with you before. I mean, there were designated preachers who'd go right across the country from one side to the other and their specialty was the return of Christ. And they would bring onto the platform their charts pre you know. Special fancy uh, visual gear. It, it, they'd bring their charts. They'd set them up on on easels, and, and we'd buy these big books. I had for many years a big book about this long, but it sort of you rolled it back and gave all diagrams of what was going to happen in the future. Very elaborate detail. You'd have weekend seminars, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Lengthy sermon series. Who who lived through some of that era? Come on, let's be oh, hundreds of you. Yeah, three or four. Well, see, this was early new south wales and uh, and particularly early western australian churches of christ a lot of churches really heavily involved in this kind of thing you know many christians in that time not all but many christians in that time were so preoccupied with the end times that they missed opportunities for service and ministry and witness in what we'd call today real time right here and now besides we were also terrified we'd be doing the wrong thing at the moment of his return that was a big thing don't let him catch you doing whatever, you know, and I had a whole string of things I was trying to avoid. Uh, but uh, it was, and so your, your eternal salvation could be jeopardised by that one moment of, uh, of failure if, uh, if that was the moment when Jesus came. So on the subject of when, I can imagine our Lord saying, well, you tell me and we'll both know. But when it comes to the actual idea of his return, the the place of his return in the overall biblical drama. Uh, friends, I can imagine Jesus lowering his coffee cup and saying, well, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like, like it makes sense that, that I should return. I, I mean, the elaborate build up to my first arrival as a, as a little baby, all those Old Testament prophecies, the inadequacy of the old covenant to really connect people into a saving relationship with God. I was born, I lived, I identified with you, my people in every way. I died on the cross for the sins of the world. On the third day, I rose again. Some weeks later, I ascended to my Father. Today, here you are as my church, my body, my my followers. You're doing my work through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're doing a great job against uh, insurmountable odds at times. It makes sense that there'll come a day. There'll come a day. When we just wrap the whole thing up like a scroll and it'll mark the end of history as we know it and it'll usher in a whole new dimension of existence, free from pain, free from disappointment, free from suffering, free from disease. It makes sense, doesn't it? I can picture Jesus saying that because it does make sense. He'd probably say, you know, you guys deserve that. You know, we deserve to have a time when it's going to be a whole new existence. And that will follow the return of Jesus Christ. I think this is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 14, verse 3, when he says this, and we, Hannah read it to us. After I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself so that you will be where I am. Now, friends, I've got to tell you, there's no better place to be than in the presence of Jesus Christ. <laughs> there is no better place to be than in the literal, physical presence presence of jesus there's the promise so that where i am so you will be where i am wow jesus said these words at a time when the disciples were very concerned and anxious about the future their future the context of this utterance by jesus is just after the institution of the lord's supper and there's a lot of tension there's a lot of uncertainty jesus has washed their feet as a, as a sign of what real servant leadership is going to be about. Uh, Judas has slipped out to do his thing. Uh, Jesus has already prophesied or indicated that Peter will deny him three times. And so this is a time of real uncertainty. And, and the guys are sensing that, that, that they're moving to some sort of climax. And so in that sense, this, this point, this very point in the story, marks the moment when their lifestyle would never be the same again. All of these guys would die for for their faith in the years to come. They would never be the same again. Life would be no picnic from now on for any one of them. At the beginning of chapter 14, just before this statement, we read it earlier, Jesus says, don't be worried and upset. I want to just calm you guys down. I, I can sense you're anxious. Don't be worried and upset. And then he goes on to say that. Then, then comes the promise about his return. It's something to look forward to. It's something to make it all worthwhile. That's what Jesus was saying. A link to this point and something else I can picture our Lord saying is this. Things will be radically different when I return. <laughs> and everything will at last make sense. My return, says Jesus, is absolutely necessary to make wrong things right, to dispense some ultimate justice, to end suffering, to eradicate disease, to remove grief and sadness forever, to start dishing out a few rewards because that's there in the Bible as well and to usher in eternity. And he'd probably say, go back to what John said about this in the book of Revelation and he'd be referring to John chapter 21 and the opening verses. Look at this. Now God's home is with humankind. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. This is all to do with the return of Jesus. And of course, the next verse, the very next verse, which has brought so much encouragement and so much strength to so many people over the years. Watch this. Look at this. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither will there be any more pain for the form of things will have passed away. The form of things, all those things that cause you and I so much hurt and pain and grief all gone. It's all part of this promise of the return of Jesus Christ. Things will be radically different in the new heaven and the new earth following the return of Jesus. And there's a further promise, you know, there's a further promise in the word relating to the fact that everything at last will make sense. The why questions will be answered. All those why questions you've got, they'll be answered, or at least we'll be given clarity, a certain degree of clarity around the things that we have found incomprehensible in this life. We'll be given a certain amount of clarity. There's a powerful reference to this promise in First Corinthians chapter thirteen. It comes at the end of of the great chapter on love we all like to quote the the love chapter but there's a couple of verses at the end that are directly related to this theme look at this this is at the end when when paul says in verse 12 what we see now this earthly existence what we see now is like a dim image in a mirror and the corinthians knew about mirrors because they produced some of the world's mirrors at that time made of polished metal but even the best of the mirrors had a certain element of distortion, a certain element of, of fuzziness about them because of the nature of metal. You just can't get that clarity you get with, with glass. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial, he says. Then it will be complete. As complete as God's knowledge of me. Get your head around that. As complete As God's knowledge of me. That which appears incomprehensible now, there'll be some clarity, there'll be some answers, and there'll be an eternity to find out those answers. Wow, what we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What we know now is only partial, then it will be complete. So we're having coffee with Jesus, and we've asked the question when are you coming back? And I can imagine for this last comment, this last comment, the fourth one, I can imagine Jesus would probably put both hands on our shoulders across the coffee table and look deeply into our eyes. And with a bit of a smile, I think he would say this, don't be anxious, but be alert. Don't be anxious, but be alert. Don't fret yourself over dates and details. But live with a sense of anticipation in the knowledge that one day it will happen. But remember, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear while ever you're in relationship with me. And look, Paul puts it beautifully, friends, in in Colossians, one of the less known books of the New Testament. Look what he says in chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Look at this. Keep your minds fixed on things that are above, not on things here on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life is Christ. And when he appears, there it is. When he appears, you too will appear with him and share his glory. Now, that phrase, keep your keep your minds fixed on things that are above, not on things here on earth. Now, look. That's not a call to become, as the old saying used to go, so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's that's not a call to that. Nor is it a call to develop a, a preoccupation with the return of Christ to the exclusion of all other doctrines and all other aspects of the Christian life. That was the problem of yesteryear. No, it's a question of where our heart is. It's a question of where our priorities lie. It's a question of our overriding motivation for life. It's a question of what is home? What is home? Paul says your real life, your real life is Christ. Now look at Paul. I mean, look at this man. I mean, a more down to earth, practically oriented, hands on, servant hearted person. You couldn't wish to, to, to meet a, a person more wide in that way. There's no other worldly, transcendental asceticism with this guy. No way. But it's a case of what you call home. You know what it's like. You're travelling overseas, and many of you have done that, and you're seeing amazing things and you're having a fantastic time. But as the time goes on, you get a little yearning for home. You know you know what's awaiting. It, it, provided home means love and acceptance and fulfilment and joy. If they're the things that wait, if the federal police is waiting for you, well, obviously, you know you're not... You're not sort of feeling quite the same way about, about home. But if that's the place where you know is the real you, you're looking forward to getting home. If that's, that's the closest I can think of in terms of our, you know, we live, this, we live on this earth, we, we go through this life with all its pain and all of its suffering and its tragedy, but this, this, is, not, this is not us. This is not our final destination. You know, the old Negro spiritual, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And that's the reality, That's That's what's at the heart of the doctrine of the return of Christ. This is, this is not us, really. This is preparation for that which will be really home. And so that's what Paul means by your real life in Christ, And if that's how it is, then we will appear with him at his return, and there will be no fear. Coffee with Jesus. When are you coming back? You tell me we both know. First thing. It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you think of the whole scheme of things. It makes sense there'll be a a time when it all will be over, new existence. Things will be different. Mysteries will be explained. Don't be anxious. Be alert. Friends, the return of Christ is an undeniable doctrine in the Scriptures. I don't know why more people don't speak about it. Well, I do know some reasons. Part of it because of that crazy preoccupation of the past. But it is an undeniable doctrine of the Scriptures. The details are open to interpretation. There's no question about that. You can be premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, and, and back it up with verses from the Bible. It is open to interpretation, and I, I've got no idea how it, how it might happen. But here's the thing, and I hope you can join me in this. I live, I live in the hope that what we know now is only partial, but then we will know face-to-face. Then we will know face-to-face. That's a big part of my motivation in life, and I hope it's yours. Let's bear in prayer, shall we?